Welcome to another episode of the Connected Communities podcast brought to you by Be In Unity. Um, in this episode, we are sitting with Dr. Christine Hadfield. Uh, Christine is a lecturer in initial teacher education and also a trustee of the charity Scottish Attachment in Action. Um, really grateful for Christine giving up her time to be able to have this conversation and share some of the insights that she has experienced over her whole career. Um, in this podcast, we're going to be looking at a whole range of different topics, ranging from her early context and what her community aspect was like when she was growing up. Uh, we're going to have a personal insight into some of the challenges that she's experienced professionally, but also more meaningfully as a parent. Uh, we're going to be looking at the different challenges that she's experienced as a parent, including some distressing behaviours, the way that she used to respond to certain situations and the way that she now responds to different situations. Through this podcast, Christine also shares some of the detail around what initial teacher education actually is, understanding whether we're realistic in the role and setting expectation for teachers, whether we are getting it right for children, and also whether we get it right for teachers. So please sit back, enjoy the podcast, let us know any feedback, um, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's get to it. On this episode of the Connected Communities podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Christine Hadfield to the podcast. Welcome, Christine. Uh, for those who are listening, Christine is a lecturer in initial teacher education and also a trustee at Scottish Attachment in Action. And that's going to be quite a quite a pertinent point because what we are going to focus most of our discussion on today is initial teacher education and also attachment and how that sort of feeds into education and the importance of raising awareness of attachment within our school communities and providing teachers with the skills and the confidence so as they're able to go and then respond to kids. So, Christine, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. Um, it's, it's your pleasure. What I would like to start with is just maybe looking at what some of the driving factors were for you getting into education because for your academic achievements, um, and we, we could maybe flesh some of that out later on, we can look at mm -hmm. it. Just really interested to know why did you get into education? A good question, because I grew up saying that I was never going to be a teacher because my parents were teachers. Um, yes. But I did my degree in French and Spanish, and then I went on and did my PhD. And while I was doing my PhD, I did some teaching and realised that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I liked working with people. I liked working with young people. So then I went on and did my PGC as I did that in England and then became a teacher. Um, and that seems like a long time ago now <laughs> and in another life. So, so you never really wanted to be a teacher when you were growing up? No, I didn't. I think because I was surrounded by teachers. I had aunties and a granny that was a teacher. My parents were teachers. Um, I just didn't want those conversations over the dinner table. <laughs> um, but I guess that gave me an appreciation for what's involved in being a teacher too. I suppose if, if, if you're going to school every day and you're surrounded by teachers, then you come home every mm -hmm. day and you're... Surrounded by teachers, yeah. like you, you might you might choose not to get an education, but you ended up going into education. Yeah. Why was it you went into education? I suppose I wanted to, I was quite idealistic and I wanted to make a difference to children's lives. I became a modern languages teacher because that was my area of expertise. I did love the languages and I wanted to spread that. I knew that I could. Um uh, but I suppose I wanted to do a job that would make a difference, you know, somehow in other people's lives. And and then when I became a teacher, that was the side of it, I suppose, that I enjoyed most, although it was difficult. It was very hard. Mm. Um, 
building those relationships with the young people and trying to give them some belief in themselves, whether that was for languages or whether it was for life, yeah. was um, the most rewarding part of being a teacher. Yeah. Good. So when you were growing up, um, both parents were teachers. Yes. And what was the conversations like at the dinner time? Um, I guess it, it was about how difficult it was. I could see the workload. My dad was a head teacher um, in a, a tough area um, of our city. And so I think there were a lot of struggles there. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess I wanted something different at that point in time. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so your parents... Um, cause, so my parents were the teachers, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have a good experience education. Uh, and we, we know that because we've had that discussion before. Yeah. But was was there a lot of pressure for you to perform well academically? Oh, yes. Yeah. Aye. Our education was our priority growing up. Yeah. Um, nothing else could be done until the homework was done. Um, and I had sisters. I've got three sisters. So the four of us, uh, we we worked hard. But there was no question um, that we were going to push ourselves to to the limit and we were supported we were pushed but we were supported as well to do that yeah um and we were in that environment in that household that supported that we were very lucky you know we didn't feel lucky at the time we just felt like it was hard um but but looking back we were very lucky and that and all that support that we had yeah okay and when you were growing up what was what was like your community environment like so specifically around Community as in like the relationships that you had, whether it would be just your parents, your siblings, your wider family context, mm-hmm. or was there a was there a, a community aspect that you really enjoyed in the areas that you grew up? Yeah, I suppose we were we are and still are part of a community. Um we grew up Catholics as well, so there was a very strong Catholic community in the parish, and that was connected to the school too. Um most of my friends lived in the catchment area, the same area where the school was. And we all grew up in similar ways with similar values. And that was really important. We were in that environment where um, we were uh, encouraged to succeed academically and go on to university. Um, and and then there were there were sports clubs. There were plenty of opportunities like that as well, that uh, brownies and guides and all of these things. We were surrounded by that. I suppose as a child, you really take for granted. I certainly took for granted. Yeah. Um, and I look back on it now as a parent and, and what I try and provide for my children and whether they have that, that same connection, that community. I think they do, but... And probably we don't... None of us appreciate it till we're older, do we? Yeah. <laughs> that we're surrounded by that. Um and I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I was friends with then, um, and through through different ways, different things. So there was a lot of there was a lot of adult relationships, whether mm-hmm. it be family or in that sort of wider community um, context, where it was things like guides and brownies. Yeah. And, you know, after school clubs, maybe like uh, running it, club. Yeah, we running club was running something clubs. that we did through Aye. our teens. You know, so we were we were there a couple of nights a week, and there were coaches there, and there were other people there of different ages, and it was just we just did these things. Yeah, you know, we filled our life with things. That's why I mean, we were we were so lucky. We had it on our doorstep. We had our parents who could drive us there, yeah. pick us up. Um, so there was definitely a community there. Okay, so back in November, um, we. 
I say we, me, me and my, my, my wife and my business partner, Lisa, mm-hmm. attended a conference in Glasgow. Um, and until we ten- attended that conference, we actually never knew who Christine Hadfield was. <laughs> and you were speaking at this conference and a lot of the language that you were using really resonated with both myself and Lisa. Yeah. Um, you were speaking the language of attachment. You were mm-hmm. looking at you as you were discussing models for relationships, uh, how important it is for people just to be compassionate yeah. with kids. And then you started talking about um, neuroplasticity and kit bag. And I was like, my <laughs> God, we need to go and we need to find her at lunchtime and we need to speak to her. Because so yeah. what, what I felt is that our values had started to align. And I thought it'd be really interesting just to have a conversation. Yeah. But the real big thing that inspired us listening to you was listening to your own personal experiences mm-hmm. of understanding this newfound knowledge that you've came across over the past couple of years being yeah. attachment and how that impacted you professionally teaching mm-hmm. but also how it impacted you personally in your own relationships with your, with your kids yeah if you could maybe just try and express how important that information was mm-hmm. and whether you wish you had known it before yeah, so I suppose I can go back to where I first started coming across. So I, 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 I was a teacher and then I took leave to adopt my first two children um, without having known anything about attachment or not much about child development or anything about the brain. Um, and then we, I got my, my older two children and was trying to be super nanny, as that's what I had seen as for parenting programs, yeah. so that's what you yeah. did. And you so, put your children on that bottom step and you put them there for four minutes because he's four years old and we, we you show them who's boss and all of that. And so we, we never even had a notice step because we didn't have any stairs in the house. We went with uh, a mat. Oh, we, aye, aye, we, we, aye, well, we thought we were target. being clever because we called it the sorry step aye. instead of the naughty step. And aye. then we had a, a little like IKEA round rug that was the sorry carpet. Yeah. And then we had the very sorry carpet. <laughs> so one, they went from one to the other. Yeah. Um, and it just wasn't working. And um, my husband at the time was a teacher too. We were both very experienced teachers and we'd learned about assertive discipline and you have your set of rules and you have your rewards and you have your sanctions and the children understand that and they make their choice. So we were applying all of that as parents, um, very keen and eager and energetic young parents, and it just wasn't working. Mm. It, it wasn't working at all. And I don't even know who started me on this. I think somebody gave me a book on da- by Dan Hughes, who's written a lot about mm. attachment and, and adopted and foster children. And I just started reading and then it was just resonating with what was happening in my house. You know, I could see those, these behaviours that I was struggling to understand and to deal with. Um, and so I read and read and read and spoke to people and went to talks and conferences. And I would say it was utterly life-changing for myself and for my children, okay. <laughs> um, without Sorry, getting too emotional, but it's transformative. It was, it was, and it's, it continues to be yeah. because I continue to learn. So that was thirteen, nearly fourteen years ago, when I, I guess I started on that journey of learning about my children, um, which might feel weird to to parents, to mums, they, they don't have to learn about their children. <laughs> when you go, well, I guess you do as you give birth and you, you're learning as your children grow their personalities and uh, move through life. But this was learning in a whole other scale for me. Yeah. Um, but life changing. And I can't remember what, yeah, what else did you ask me in that question? Was it? So one thing that I'd actually like to, to just to pick up on, because I, I find it really interesting, the whole behavioural approach where, mm-hmm. 
uh, like like super nanny on TV. You know, yeah. kids are bad and they're four. You put them on an auto step for four minutes because mm-hmm. they're four. And as as a young parent myself, I, I can remember thinking like that makes to- that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like four minutes because he's four. Yeah, like, time to go on an automat. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what 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 you had then went on to say was that when you were reading this new knowledge, this, these books that you were given and yeah. uh, you were watching videos and going to talks mm-hmm. and you started to identify the behaviours. What were some of those behaviours? Um, well, I suppose I could see the behaviours. They were very obvious, certainly from my son. At that point in time, he was aggressive. Mm. Um, he would push us away. It was He didn't respond to rewards. He almost looked like he was trying to get into trouble, like that was what he knew. Um, he would throw things and there was spitting and growling and biting, you know, and we, we were just at a loss. I was like, how do I, how do I deal with this? The, this sorry step and this mm. sorry carpet and all that's not working. You know, we would do things like, well, there's no telly that night. Um, you know, things we, we took things from him as we thought that's what you were supposed to do and that's yeah. how they would learn. But that's a very behaviorist approach and that relies on that child being able to process cause and effect I suppose that that their behaviours will will bring upon that effect for them or in the household but I suppose in time we realised that that they're not able he wasn't able to process that Um, that that processing part it operates a different part of the brain yeah Um, I mean so we were doing those sort of behavioural aspects as well like your kids weren't even old enough to process it yeah you know so so yeah, there was that. I mean, how, how, why would any three or four year old really be able to process that? Yeah. Would they? I'm not saying that these these approaches don't work for anybody. I just don't know that they're the best approaches yeah. for children. Yeah. Um, but also, I had there were times when I knew he was gone. You know, I would describe it as that he was gone. His face would change a bit. He was, in, and I wouldn't even call it a tantrum. It was meltdown. It was, you know, catastrophe. Boxes of toys were thrown down the stairs for hours. Like, you know, sometimes it would go on for hours, and I'd be saying, "Well, if you throw another one down, you've got no supper." And yeah. <laughs> you know, but he couldn't hear me. Like, this is what I realised in yeah. time. He couldn't hear me because he was gone. He was in this fight flight mode mm. that I didn't even know existed when I became a parent, you know. Yeah. Um, so why would they, none of us can hear anybody else when we are enraged, can yeah. we, when we've lost it. Um, and then, so I realised that there wasn't any point in trying to communicate during that that moment that or those moments. I just had to ride the storm and then move in later and see what we could do, you know, and talk about it if we yeah. could. That, that's what really resonated with us was the, the personal aspect of it because when you shared that it takes huge amounts of courage to be able to say that mm-hmm. you feel like you got it wrong oh um, absolutely yeah and seeing that in front of like uh, there's probably about two to three hundred people in that that room mm-hmm. um loads of educators uh probably more parents and there were loads of parents sitting there thinking thank god yeah like you gave permission to, them permission. to feel, uh-huh. to feel yeah. that and I actually, had, I never had a question because the questions come out and I just says, give me that mic so I can say thank you for sharing <laughs> yeah. that because it's really important that we get the ability to be able to process that. Yeah. That sometimes we can just get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what really matters, and it was Suzanne Zedek that 
that's really ingrained this into my my thinking is that the the rupture is always going to happen. Yeah. But the repair is more important. Absolutely. So, so focus on the repair. Mm-hmm. And maybe the repair comes six years after. Yeah. But it's still important to revisit it and, and build that opportunity for trust mm-hmm. in the relationship with, with you and the, the child at that point. Yeah. So that, that really, like I say, that really inspired us to get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was almost as if like the universe had aligned because you came in the old seat that you could <laughs> yeah. sit beside was yours. <laughs> that's right, lunch. lunchtime. Yeah, that's uh, right. So we, we sat and we ate a bit of lunch and I heard more about like the type of work that you're involved in. Yeah. I get really interested because you say that you're an initial teacher education. Yes. So just just for the listeners, there'll be a lot of teachers listening to this who know this, uh, but, but I don't really know what that is. What is initial teacher education? I suppose it's where we are training the teachers of the future. So we're doing that. uh, There's various different routes into teaching, as people will know and you will know. So we have our undergraduate course um, where students come, a lot of them come straight from school and they're doing four or five years to train to be primary teachers. And then we have our postgraduate, two different postgraduate course, postgraduate primary and postgraduate secondary who are are training to be specialists in, in a particular curricular area. So uh, I guess initial teacher education is all of that. It's all of that about uh, becoming a teacher. Also, becoming a teacher is one of the sets of standards from the GCCS. The new the new standards came out in 2021. So we are trying to educate people to become teachers and all of that 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 involves. Um, and it's huge when you start to unpick <laughs> what a teacher has to do. And I'm not sure that everybody... And the world realises that, and I'm not sure that a lot of our students realise that when they begin. You know, um, and I certainly see it as we've got to be holistic about this, about the person, and a lot of that involves reflection as well, asking our students to reflect on who they are and why they've got to where they've got to and why they want to be a teacher, like you were asking me, why did I want to be a teacher? We've got to think about that, and we've got to think about where we come from and what has influenced us, because that will then influence how we are with the young people that we come into contact with. Mm. And that's almost more important than uh, how good is your knowledge of geography, yeah. um, I think. I, I share that opinion as well. I, I really do. I, I think it's important that we get an understanding as to why people go into education, mm-hmm. but also that we give uh, essentially those new teachers that are going into those pathways like a, a realistic expectation on what to expect in the education yeah. system. Yeah. Because I, I know as, when I was a wee guy, I used to think like that person's there just to teach geography. Mm-hmm. Um, they might have been like exceptionally good at teaching geography or physics, but, but I wasn't always sold in the fact that they were there for me. Uh-huh. Like they weren't, I didn't feel like that person's here to look after me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that we have got, or do you think that sometimes we've got unrealistic expectations for teachers? Like we, we might say to them, here's a good career. Um mm-hmm but we don't give them the full the full expectation of their own. So it's not just about your su- your subject. Uh-huh. I suppose it, it will depend on how you define the role. And there are many teachers and head teachers and others in education that will define it differently. And there will be initial teacher educators who will define it differ- differently. Mm-hmm. At Glasgow and myself, we are, as I've just said, we're trying to define it holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and well-being is a big part of that. Sometimes it feels like we're battering against other pressures, I suppose, that teachers are under. 
um, and, and teachers themselves and some of the trainees, when I speak to them, will say say to me, well, that's all well and good if you're telling me to be like that with those children, but I have 30 of them in my class yeah. and 10 of them are running riot. And I, I'm not pretending that I have solutions um, mm. to this um, or that it's easy by any means to to just deal with that behaviour or those children like that. There's no just about it. It's very demanding. Um, but I think it's crucial that we are holistic in our definition of the role of a teacher. And I think that's not widespread, widespread across the whole education system, and it needs to be. Okay. So what are some of the roles of a teacher? Um, I think the primary role is to provide a place of safety, emotional, physical, academic, anything type of safety for the children that they come into contact with, to build connections with them, to build their self-esteem, um, their self-confidence, um, to help them find their own identity and their own path in life, what, whether that's down your subject area or not down your subject area. Um, it's to build trust in the world and trust in human beings mm. um, because certainly my children, uh, my adopted children, and, and for many, many children, there's they, they've struggled to trust because they've been let down badly in the past. Yeah. Um, and their brain is telling them that, you know, the world's, the world's bad and that they're bad and they're not lovable and that, you know, why would anybody love them? So when a teacher comes in and is slightly different with them than other adults have been or than how other adults always are with them, then that starts to change pathways in their brain and can start to change their life. I say this every week, I think, to the students I come into contact with, that never to forget the, the power of, of a teacher yeah. to change lives. We can we can all remember teachers, like you said, not you didn't feel like very many of them were there for you as a person, but I yeah. bet you there was one here or there that you know you really clicked with and you connected with and brought something out in you. Um so, so it's interesting no. because there was there was one teacher, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when I was in second year, that's when my my levels of skidding and up here as dog and truancy started to like uh -huh. become increasingly um, worrying. All right, now for for those who were not involved, like it was just me that knew I was skidding. Uh -huh. So nobody really cared at that point. I don't even know the word skidging. So, so it's truancy. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's yeah. staying after school. Okay. Uh, and. Every now and again, I would just go in for one topic. Mm -hmm. right? now, I used to go in for physics. Now, I can remember being in physics and thinking, like, this stuff's pretty complicated, man. Mm -hmm. And, like, actually, you know, like, PE is easier. Right? Now, yeah. I'm not trying to say that PE isn't a difficult topic, but, like, as a young person experiencing PE, like, you're playing games, you're yeah. kicking the ball about, you're playing, I don't know, baseball, whatever it might be. Um, but in physics, you're, you're not doing that. It's, it's quite heavy going, mm -hmm. theoretical work. But the teacher who took physics, both physics teachers, uh -huh. were, were superb. Dr. Gillen was one of them, uh -huh. uh, and Mr. Faulkner was the other. Those two guys were really, really meaningful people mm -hmm. because I think my experience, what I felt, was that they just accept you. Uh -huh. It doesn't matter if you're not like, amazing at physics. Like they just, They're really passionate about their topic, mm -hmm. but they're also just really passionate about letting young people experience their topic and they could speak to you. Yeah. Um, if it was if like something, so you went into their lessons and aye. not into others. Aye. Well, there you go. So, so it was like, and as soon as I was finished physics, mm -hmm. I would then leave the school again. Yeah. You know, and it was like, so, so my, you're my, so the learning can only really ever happen if we feel comfortable, if we want to learn in that room with totally. that person. Totally. And so, until we recognise that as the as 
number one, really, in being a teacher. Until that's really recognised, then we're still going to struggle with children and we're going to struggle with attainment as yeah. as we're always hearing about you know that it's this poverty related attainment gap and we've got to do better for the children yes yes we do have to do better yeah but the question is how do we yeah. do better james doherty i heard him speaking numerous occasions yeah um, and he says that one of the biggest things that we actually lack in our communities is a is is the poverty that we know, mm-hmm. but actually it's a it's a relational poverty as well. The real poverty are like yeah. positive relationships for, for young people. For young people. But mm-hmm. also for adults. Um Yeah, it's supporting the family as a whole, supporting yeah. parents Aye. who are in who could be in really tough situations that we can't even imagine, you know. Yeah. So there's there, again, this is so you get, rather than just the role of the teacher, the role of the education system, the role of the school, you know, working with parents in that community um, is crucial. It's yeah. really crucial. You've obviously had a lot of experiences through your teaching career, mm-hmm. um, working in schools, progressing through your own sort of academic career, uh, and then moving into initial teacher education. Uh-huh. If you could, what would the sort of three key attributes or three key top tips that you could give to to new teachers or those who are thinking about getting into the world of teaching Mm -hmm. three things that you think would add real value to them before they before they come into that role before they go into being a teacher um good question i would say so is it kind of piece of pieces of advice would you say to them three key pieces of advice i suppose first of all look at at yourself, be brave enough to look at yourself, really look deeply into yourself and what influences your behaviour, your beliefs, your attitudes. And there'll be so many things that would come into that. The, the, the environment that they live in will influence how they are. So first of all, is look carefully at themselves. Um, secondly, I suppose, remember that you are teaching children above all else above literacy numeracy geography french art above all else you're teaching children uh, you know even 16 17 year olds they are still children mm. as much as they may look like adults they will still respond to uh, compassion and care um the third piece of advice um look after yourself <laughs> and it might sound i've been a wee bit selfish self-centered here about teachers but um, unless they're feeling calm and emotionally safe, they will not be able to uh, to carry what they need to carry mm. when they come into children, particularly traumatised children or children with that are going through trauma, still going through trauma, or still going through difficult situations. Um, because because those children really need them, they need them to be their secure base. Um, and we all get caught up in our careers, don't we? And then planning the best lesson and making it look good and my resources being great. But that means nothing if you're ultra stressed when you walk into the classroom or you're too tired to be able to remember that child's name. Yeah. Um, so looking after themselves, I suppose. There's many, many other things I could advise teachers to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's off the top of my head. Right. Th- th- three key ones. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that... that- the last one that you finished with there about looking after yourself is just mm-hmm. exceptionally important. Yeah. Um, and I think you can take that not just in a teaching profession, you can take that into Everywhere. any walk of life. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Even if... And we have to be a wee bit hard on ourselves. It took me a long time as a parent to be able to justify uh, going for a night out, you know, yeah. or going myself, myself for a bit of peace and quiet for a coffee in an afternoon. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to 
to convince myself that that was okay. Mm. You know, um, that, because I needed the breaks. I needed breaks away from the children um, to be able to then go back in and deal with what I had to deal with. Yeah. It also kind of shows children that it's all right to look after yourself as well. Yeah. Because you know, it's role modelling. It's modelling, modelling yeah. it too. Um, you know, and we're asking teachers to do that in the classroom, you know, even with little bits of mindfulness or little bits of breathing or even verbalising what they're feeling. I'm getting a bit stressed, children. I'm going to stop and I'm going to take some deep breaths and yeah. modelling at that, but also modelling the lifestyle. Um, you know, encouraging sport, for example, because that allows people to take a break and look yeah. after themselves. I know loads of schools that have sort of adopted kit bag, which we're going to speak about later. And I know that, I know that you're well versed with kit bag. Yeah. Um, but... One one of the schools, one of the teachers in particular, who was introduced to it first time, they thought, man, that, that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought what they say is, is, I think that can have a massive impact on my initial connections with kids straight away. First thing, as soon as they come into my class, we can connect to that. Yeah. So they put the the kit bag feelings card. Yeah. And introduced it to all their classes, um, and then they just sort of enlarged it, made it huge. And when kids came in, mm-hmm. uh, before they start, they take a minute just to tell them what colour. I'm feeling orange, I'm feeling black, I'm feeling purple. Mm-hmm. And they've got the opportunity to say why they feel those specific colours. If, if, if they want, want to. Uh-huh. And if they don't, they don't need to. Some kids will say, I don't feel any colours today, miss. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And I, I just thought, like, that's that's one way for for teachers to help show, like, to help role model. Yeah. Like, actually like we can all do feel. this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. She's checking in with herself every 55 minutes. Yeah. So every time that the bell goes and there's a new group of kids coming in, She's checking in herself. Right. Uh-huh. You know, and that's practicing self-care. Mm-hmm. But it's also showing the kids that you're allowed to do that. Yeah. And yeah. I always think when it comes to like nurture-based approaches, mm-hmm. we're going to look at the your, your article here, which is called Whose Responsibility Is It Anyway? Yeah. Um, but when it comes to nurture-based approaches, mm-hmm. uh, Bauclair Academy, I, I, I won't stop raving about how good they are. In some schools, we've got nurture bases. And mm-hmm. They've got like a nurture room or a nurture zone, which is great. Mm-hmm. But they're like, we, we don't really want just a zone. Yeah. Like we just want that rippled into every single classroom. Yeah, permeated across and the culture. School. Yeah. And they're doing some incredible work mm-hmm. uh, over in Buckley Academy. You should tie in. Yeah. Hopefully try yeah. and visit to. them. Yeah. Uh, just so as you can see what I always say to them, that's attachment and action. In action. Uh-huh. So when you're meeting kids at the door, even when they're late, like mm-hmm. pff, that's a head teacher, deputy head teacher, the senior leadership team, they're not meeting them when they're late to get them into trouble. Yeah. They're doing it to welcome them. Yeah. You know, it's like and I think that's incredibly simple, but incredibly powerful. Yeah. You know, that and being remembered. And, I, and I've heard it from my own children. You know, my son will say, well, she cares about me. And I know it's because that particular guidance teacher has maybe just gone and checked on him at lunch, yeah. lunchtime. Yeah. Well, she cares about me. She thinks I'm all right. And that's This is the type of chat. And, you know, it's huge. And that's enough to sort of buoy him up a bit to yeah. then go and deal with the other stuff that he has to deal with, you know. Aye. No, um, it, it, huge, huge impact the teachers yeah. can have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm going to keep us on the topic of teaching okay. before we move into the topic of parenting uh-huh. so like I mentioned um, Christine I, I, I was actually doing a wee bit of research this morning before I came in to meet you uh-huh. uh, and I thought right what's, what's Christine all about what, <laughs> what's, she, what's she been up to right so uh-huh. I, I found one of your uh, articles online so your article whose responsibility is it anyway Yeah. published in 2022 yes Um. And I thought, man, that's amazing, <laughs> right? Because there's like an academic structure behind it yeah. that helps to support what everybody kind of already knows. So in the introduction of the article, mm-hmm. um, 
it starts by saying that a recent survey of over 3,000 school staff in Scotland found that the majority do not feel equipped with the appropriate training in mental health yeah. to do their job properly. Um, and that teachers generally feel that they lack the knowledge, confidence and skills to promote mental health, as well as the time, training and resources. Yeah. What did that survey do to inform your article? Um, I suppose we were we wanted to go and find out a bit more about that and what that meant. And we actually the interviews that we carried out in the school were before COVID. Um, so even they, I suppose we were realizing from anecdotally that there were more and more pupils presenting with mental health issues, and that we wanted to know if. I suppose we were coming from a point of view of initial teacher education as well. We were asking, are we training our students well enough to go out into this profession? You know, do, have we got enough on mental health and well-being in our courses uh, for them to be able to go and do the job that they need to do? So we wanted to go and find out, right, well, what do you need? Um, how do you feel about this? And so that report had kind of said that to us and we wanted to just delve a wee bit deeper into the to the views and the attitudes and why they felt they weren't equipped and what we could do about it. So, um, so that's what we did. And that article was just done in one school and, there was, uh, and I'm going to, again, yeah. I'm just going to pull some yeah, stuff there because it, it, it was really impactful. Mm -hmm. um, what I find really interesting is that teachers don't feel equipped to talk about mental health, uh -huh. right? And we're actually putting teachers into the position where they are responsible for sometimes maybe up to 100, but in fact, maybe up to 200 kids a day. Yeah. Depending on how many... How many classes, how many they... Uh-huh, yeah. So we know, and in fact, the evidence suggests that almost half of all mental health conditions in adulthood yeah. will be identifiable by the age of 14. Yeah, yeah. How, how are we serving our teachers well if we're not even giving them education behind... Well, absolutely. If it, When we spoke to them... The number of times that the word equipped came up were not equipped. Yeah. And, you know, I started feeling guilty because I was I was thinking we're the ones in initial teacher education who are supposed to equip or we're supposed to begin to equip them. We can't give them everything in the teacher education course. Yeah. We have to set them on that journey and they will learn lots more in the job and training that they will get in the job. Um, but um, this word equipped, we're not equipped, we're not equipped. Um, came up from so many of them and that's what some of them felt really strongly about. Some of them were saying, no, it's a core part of our job. We all need to do this. We all need training in this and we should have it in initial teacher education. Interestingly and maybe frighteningly, in my point, from my point of view, there were others on the other, at the other end who didn't see it as part of their job because and this was a secondary school we were talking about and I, and I do think it would be different in a primary school. But a secondary school usually has its structure there, but there'll be a, a, a pastoral team, there'll be guidance staff, there might be different uh, principal teachers. Sometimes you get a principal teacher of behavioural supports, a principal teacher of various different things where that's their core responsibility. But we were talking to ordinary class teachers and some of them, there's nothing ordinary about being a class teacher, but class teachers without any promoted responsibilities mm. who just didn't see that as part of their job, they they would just pass any concerns on. They would pass them on to the pastoral team yeah. who should deal with it. But I suppose we're not equipping them with the understanding that they are the first, they can be the first port of call. Like you were talking about your physics teacher 
Um, I certainly had teachers that I would have gone and spoken to and I was far more comfortable with than other teachers. You build relationships with them. And so, and me as a teacher, I had pupils confide in me because I had a strong relationship with that particular pupil. Yeah. And, and very personal and worrying things they would confide in you because... They could because we had opened, where if we're telling, saying to teachers that one of your main roles is to build trust in a human being, you know, allowing those young people to build trust, then we can't be surprised when they come to us to talk to us about issues. Yeah. Um, and we might be the only person, this is where it's absolutely crucial, because we might be the only person in the world that that young person feels at that moment that they can confide in. Mm. And it's crucial that they confide in that person if we're not, if we don't have some kind of basic understanding of where that's coming from and why they might be coming to speak to us, then as a teacher, we're not we're not equipped to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, we haven't even gone to post COVID. Um, I would imagine that mental health, the mental health of teenagers, young people, is is worsening because of uh, the impact of COVID. I don't have any statistics or anything like that on just now, but I would imagine it's even worse than it was when we were talking to teachers. Um, for I, that, for that I, know, I know there is some statistics that, that back that view up. Yeah. Um, but again, I don't, I don't have my hand. So yeah, I mean, I'm anecdotally, that's what I hear. And I know that the various studies, obviously studies would be in their early stages, you know, that, that looking into this. Yeah. Um, but certainly that's what I hear, that there are more and more. It might be that, that there's more and more talk about mental health. Um, so more and more children and young people are coming forward that... You know, but that's okay because it's out. Then it's out, doesn't it? It's yeah. out there rather than it being hidden. I suppose when we were kids, you just didn't. You, there was no permission for you to be depressed or yeah. anxious. Or, you know, um, but we have to facilitate. We have to meet the needs of the children in the time that they. Uh, I suppose in in the time that they are living. So we're living in a post-COVID time, and we're living in a in, a, in an era where children are under a huge amount of pressure that we weren't, there was no social media when I was a child. So they're living in a different era and we have to meet, we have to bend and evolve and meet those needs of the children. And as a teacher educator, it's our job to bend and evolve and meet the needs of our mm. trainees um, so that they're able to go out and do that job and to survive in that job as well, because you can't forever be doing a job where you really feel that you can't deal with what's in front of you. Yeah. You know, right. if children are coming to you or they're presenting different behaviours and, and issues, um, we have to empower our teachers to be able to do the job that they want to do. Yeah. I, I know from the experience that we've had where we go in, for example, when we're delivering one of our training programmes, if it's with a group of teachers, quite often the teachers will say, like, I had no idea that it was going to be of this level. Uh -huh. They were like, an understanding that obviously we're going to be looking after the mental health of people because it's part of our job to build relationships. Yeah. But I had no idea that the extent of my own responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. And that for me, just as, as somebody who goes into deliver education and mental health and attachment, I was thinking to myself, like, you're, you're not equipped. Uh -huh. right? So, so uh -huh. you've not got the confidence to do it. Yeah. And, and what we've got to try and provide is the stepping stone to just to inspire them uh -huh. to go and learn a wee bit more themselves because... Yeah. Through initial teacher education, you mm -hmm. won't be able to deliver everything. everything. No, of course not. Yeah, and I think what's also worth... but we're also not asking teachers to be um, 
the, the way I, I think I mentioned it in that article as well is that it's, it's almost like being the GP, you know, so the GP yes. will have some knowledge in how to respond initially to someone's concerns, but if they don't have that specialist knowledge, then it has to be referred we'll on. Refer it. Yeah. So we're, we're asking, I think it was one of the teachers that said that, gave yeah. that example. That's almost what we're asking our teachers to be that first port of call. We're not asking them to be therapists or psychologists or specialists in certain conditions. We're asking them to be equipped um, to handle that first conversation. And that does take a bit more training and yeah. a bit more understanding. Yeah, it's important though. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was referred to through it is the, uh, in England, the Attachment Aware Schools yeah. project. Um, could you maybe share a little bit more about the attachment? Yeah, um, really interesting. So this came out, I think it's from Bath Spa University, and there's also a charity that works down there, Attachment Research Community, which is um, quite big and it's expanding across the country. So they've done, I think it initially was set up with funding from John Timpson, mm. um, who was a, a foster parent himself, and he's funded a lot of this. Yeah. Um, so there's some right. fascinating I, results. Just just a really good wee thing to plug in here. If, uh -huh. So if you listen, you want to know more about attachment, see if you get into like a Timpson shop, there's yes, probably the books, books the books. Free of charge yeah. about attachment. So again, go into Timpson's, get your shoes or your... Absolutely, and they've got a few wee books now. There's one about I mental health. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's brilliant. So I think that's where that started. Um, and so there's various different people going in and doing some training, working with schools um, on using different strategies. So they're calling them attachment aware schools. Uh, it's following the same principle as we've as a lot of schools we'll be following in Scotland. We're just not necessarily calling them attachment aware schools. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot. There's a, a really good political landscape in Scotland around nurture and well being um, that isn't the same in England. Um, there's still very much a zero tolerance thing in England. Um, and attachment aware schools are sort of pushing against that, and I think we have we have some brilliant practice similar to that in Scotland, um, and we have the sort of I don't know if there's a political will or there certainly is the the rhetoric um, coming from Garfek and from uh, Shanari, the bits of Garfek and the nurture agenda that does support all that kind of thing in Scotland. Yeah. Um, yeah. But certainly it's something I've looked at and read about and they are starting to do studies to look at the actual impact, um, you know, using some data on impact on these on attachment uh, strategies, I suppose, in these schools. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It makes for really interesting reading. Okay. Um, good. I, I, again, what, what I'll do is I'll put something in the, just the show notes for for people to be able to link over and, and go and maybe read one of the yeah. reports that, yeah. that we're speaking about. Another thing that... <laughs> Again, I could I could sit and talk about this article all day, right? I read it three times this morning. Um, another thing in here it says the teachers can be the victims of vicarious trauma as they grapple with the demands of dealing with children with traumatized backgrounds, and this can lead to burnout, emotional exhaustion, yeah. and leaving the profession. Yeah, teachers' own mental health is a key factor in maintaining their dedication to the profession. And yet data shows that those working in the UK education sector report to be significantly more stressed, depressed or anxious than those in other industry sectors. And one of the things that um, could be applied is either uh, psychological supervision mm -hmm. um, provided for education staff or at least a safe reflective space in order to manage their effects of their own mental health and wellbeing. Yeah. Um, teachers' own mental health 
burnout, emotional exhaustion, and leaving the profession. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen burnout or have you ever experienced it? I've never experienced it myself to the point where I've needed uh, to leave the profession or anything like that, but I can I can certainly uh, be testament to the amount of stress mm. you know that you can be under, whether it's pressure for results or feeling probably that the highest amount of stress is feeling that you're you're powerless or that it's not working or you're yeah. trying this and that and the next thing and it's not working. Yeah. Um, so that at least that goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, we need to empower teachers to be able to feel that they're doing their job. Like I said, I went into teaching to make a difference. If you feel like you're just getting nowhere, you're like you're banging your head against a brick wall, that will lead to burnout. Yeah. You know, it's not just um, quantity of work, if you like. It's not that you've got 30 essays to mark. That, that adds to it, of course. But burnout, I think, is more about um, trying to carry... Uh, the emotions and the difficulties that these children, that you know these children have and that you're trying to do your tiny bit to alleviate for them and then you feel like you're getting nowhere. Um, that's That to me, I mean, many teachers might argue with me on that, um, but that's where, where I see it, yeah. um, where it happens. Uh, and it's very difficult. And, and you know, I know as a parent how... Diff how, how um, pushed you can get you know how hard it can become and um, when you're dealing with difficult behavior day in day out and it feels like it's endless and that you're doing nothing to change it nine times out of ten we are doing something to change it we just can't see it right yeah. right at that moment yeah. um, it's, ha it's happening inside but like you somewhere. say allowing teachers to talk about that with someone without judgment you yeah. know i still feel Certainly when I was a teacher that there was, it was quite judgmental. There was quite a, well, you know, if you were talking about one particular child's behavior in your class, somebody else would say, well, it's fine for me. Hmm. I was fine in maths. It's fine, hmm. you know, and yes, children will have different relationships with different members of staff, but it was, it felt like a judgment. Um, so you then didn't talk about when you had difficulties. Yeah. Um, so it, it's something that the culture of education has to change. And, and there'll be many, many schools who are, have already changed that and are already addressing that. So I don't want to blanket everybody that nobody's doing this. Um, but, you know, do we? does it come from the GTCS? Does it come from government? Does it come from where does it come from? Where we actually um, structure time, time, break time for for uh, teachers, you know, supervision time, supportive spaces. Yeah. How we do it, I don't know exactly, but, you know, we've got to just, want just to do it. Just because it's not there doesn't mean that it can't be there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and obviously it's, it's something that's, of value and it's something that's needed uh, to Yeah, and, and, and super, supervision, and just, for example, is something that social workers would get, yes. you know, professional supervision. Yeah. Um, and it is something Scottish Attachment in Action is actually looking into that and is going to pilot a project on um, reflective supervision for teachers um, because it's people are looking into it. I know Barnardo's have looked into it um, to see whether it's something teachers would welcome. And yeah. I think the government was putting bits and pieces out or Education Scotland was putting bits and pieces in to move in that direction so you, we can hear rumblings you know of things happening and yeah. um it'd be nice to hear more of that it's see just, more of that yeah it just it just needs to be implemented yes um, yeah. like we need to make sure that, that those in education that are providing those experiences for kids that are going to be the future yeah are well looked after. Yeah. You know, and if we've got... But, but none, of this will, none of this will be implemented until everybody accepts that it's needed. Yes. Aye. And I don't think everybody accepts that it's needed. Yeah. <laughs> so that this is, you know, you're looking at a shift, a, a mindset shift or a change in culture mm. to some extent. 
And we know that cultures don't change overnight. Uh-huh. Um, that again, they're like small changes. You might not see it next week, but you'll definitely hopefully see it in 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but the worry is, is that over that 10 to 15 years, as per this article, like how many how many teachers many are just going to leave the profession? Exactly. Because yeah. they just get sick of waiting. Yeah. You know. Or they can't. They have to look after themselves. You know, yeah. we have to give them... That, that's totally understandable. I totally, totally understand why teachers would leave. It's too yeah. much. Too Aye. much to ask. Um, you also mentioned Gurthick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gurthick, most listeners will know that it's a, it's a Scottish policy, uh, which underpins all the interventions involving children. Um, to ensure that children reach their full potential and are safe, respected and loved. I always think that it's a bit, it's a bit sad that we need a policy, right? <laughs> but then I'm like, I'm grateful that we've got a policy so there's no kids do get left behind mm-hmm. um, and that we get it right for them all. Do you do you think that our, maybe the policy is laid out well, do you think we get it right for every child? Uh, absolutely not. We don't get it. I, I love that we have, I love the phrase, Garfek. Um, I love that that exists. It's obviously underpinned by the UNCRC, um, which we should be complying with. And it, and I said before, you know, the rhetoric and the political landscape and the po- it's there, or some some of it's there to some extent. But, I th- and it's been a, quite some years since Garfek first came in, but we're not getting it right for every child because not every teacher understands trauma and attachment hmm. um, as fully as they need to in order to get it right for every child. Yeah. Um, again, it's here it says... One in 10 young people aged 5 to 16 have a clinically diagnosable mental health condition, mm-hmm. which means that if you look at normal populace in a school, most majority of classrooms will have about 30 kids. Yeah, yeah. So about three kids so per, kids. per class. Uh-huh. Potentially having a, a clinically diagnosable mental health illness. Yeah. That's not a child who's maybe experienced a mental health challenge or a mm-hmm. mental health distress or another mental health like insert Episode. another type of words yeah, that yeah. would say the same type of thing. And if we've got if we've got Gurfek, which is for the kids, do you think it's worth exploring something like Gurfet, where we can get it right for every teacher? Because definitely some of the conversations that I've had, the conversation that we're having, uh-huh. uh, this article, reports that we've read, interventions that we're part of, training with other schools, programs that we've launched, initiatives that we're delivering, every single time it tells me that we're not getting it right for teachers. Yeah. And if we don't get it right for teachers, then we we are actually, we should just expect that they won't be in the best place to get it right for every child. Absolutely, absolutely. And so it, how, how important is it to start with the teachers? It's crucial. It, you know, as we've said a couple of times, it's absolutely crucial. They're almost the, the gatekeepers uh, into protecting and supporting our children. Um, and we have in Scotland the promise, you know, which was the... Folk will know this was the independent care review, yeah. um, which I know was dealing with the care system, but it's asking for Scotland to be the best place to grow up in. So it, to me, it's relevant for all children and, and it talks about the workforce. So this would be the, the wide workforce of anybody that comes into contact with children. Teachers are, obviously are a crucial part of that. So the promise is asking us to hold the hands of those who hold the hands of our children. Yeah. And I think that's just incredibly powerful. It might be quite emotional. <laughs> it's yeah. incredibly powerful that we're, we're being asked to walk alongside them 
support them so that they can support our children. Of course, it's not, it isn't rocket science, is it? No, it's not. It isn't rocket science. No. So we have to be asking, how are we supporting our teachers? How is it that they're stressed and burnt out? You know, how, how are we allowing that? Because if they're stressed, of course they can't deal with the stress that our children will bring to them. Yeah. It, it isn't rocket science. And I love that they've put it in that way of holding the hand. Yeah. You know, um, and so again, I'm coming at from initial teacher educator. Well, I'm coming at from various different viewpoints, but um, professionally, of course, I'm forever saying to our students, you know, going to look after yourselves, yeah. um, or what can we do to support you? Um, and we need to look at that more definitely. We have a long way to go. Do Do you think that sometimes we might be at risk? Of, don't, I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to be too careful with my language. <laughs> too, too at risk of creating yet another buzzword, right? So, so me- mental health has been spoken about for mm-hmm. the past ten to fifteen years. I know it's been amplified, and and I'm like, it's great that it's amplified because yeah, like we need to talk about it. We need people to be aware of it. We need to know how people experience life. Yeah, but I'm just looking at your wee, your wee card up there, up there, the resilience card. Oh yeah. 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 Obviously, for the the resilience documentary, which I speak about quite often, mm-hmm. um, really, really great starting point to understand the impact of mm-hmm. aces, aces, uh-huh. uh, and how like if you can take an ace, you could actually just say it's trauma, and then uh-huh. understand trauma can understand like attachment. Uh-huh. <laughs> what what I'm always quite skeptical is when when an organisation will say like we are trauma informed, uh-huh. right, or we are ace aware. Yeah. Um, and what it means, like who's so what defines being trauma informed? Yeah. Right? So I know we've got the NHS education that have released the documentation and trauma informed training, uh, the yeah. workforce thing. You get yeah. different tiers and levels. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you might be a level one tier yeah. trauma informed organisation, right? But yeah, are we at risk of making things like tick boxing? Yeah, it's always a, this is always a question. Well, first of all, you've brought up something about the language around all of this. Yeah. Um. I know we had the Ace Aware Nation thing that's got, there was a bit of a campaign there. Yeah. Um, and Resilience very much, the film Resilience very much raised awareness of the original Ace study. But the, well, the, there's, everybody talks about the issues with the Ace study is is forgetting that, uh, that there's, the, the, of the neuroplasticity, the fact that it's not a clearly defined outcome. You know, mm. so we start talking about Aces, I think we focus too much on, um, on deficit on what's happened even though we do need to consider what's happened to children we need to consider that you no know, with new relationships new brain pa- pa- new pathways in the brain can be formed and things can change yeah. so then we talk about trauma and what do we understand by trauma i was asking my my students just this week actually because they're about to embark on on a module on trauma and attachment with me so i said you know what's what is trauma and they said well like wars and stuff <laughs> um you know and so I said, okay, right, well, next we were going to explore different types of trauma. So is trauma the right word to use? Is ace aware, resilience, uh, attachment? So what, what are the words that we use around it? So there's, there's yeah. a question. And then how are we... Yeah, I don't have answers to this, but I don't like tick boxes either. And I don't want this these, some of this to become tick boxy mm-hmm. because it's almost like we're, we're in danger when we tick a box, then we've done it. Yeah, you know, and I've heard this and I've seen this so many times when I talk to schools and and teachers and 
And I say, well, what do you know about attachment? And they say, oh, yeah, we had training in that last month. Yeah. You know, so they might have had an hour CPD on a Wednesday after school and they said, tick that box. When really what we're asking for is a, is a culture shift, a, a, a way of being. Mm. We're asking teachers and all staff in a school to, to adapt this uh, to adopt this way of being with children. And the way of being only comes with a full understanding of of what trauma might be yeah. and continues to be and how that's grounded in attachment and how nurturing approaches help us to build new attachments and all of it's all connected. Yeah. Um, what language we should use in Scotland moving forward. You know, we talked about attachment-aware schools. Yeah. So I started thinking, right, well, why are we not calling them that in Scotland? Or is it because we've got to get some certificate to say that we're an attachment aware school? Yeah. Or is do we, so what are we doing? You know, and how are we doing this? And that is something I'm going to look at and I'm going yeah. to talk to teachers about how are we doing this? How are we getting this across Scotland? Because there's an awful lot of brilliant practice as well. It is, it is something that, so you mentioned the Aware Nation mm-hmm. um, and it was, so that was co-founded by Tigers and yeah. Connected Baby Suzanne Z. Dyke. Yeah. And, I actually worked for Tigers at the time when ASML Nation was launched. Yeah. And I can remember watching the Resilience documentary about a million times, having the opportunity to learn so much more about not just ACEs, but like the overall impact biologically, what, that, yeah. what yeah. happens in, inside. I think for me, understanding the Resilience documentary was a really nice point for me to enter into like, what's human development all about? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it just struck a really curious call to me. Um, yeah. Personal journey. Uh, and then also because of the the work that we're involved in working with young people mm-hmm. it was really apparent that, and I did I say it a wee bit obsessed with it where I was like <laughs> I need to know everything before I can make a decision Yeah, I didn't need to know everything <laughs> I was trying to know everything as much mm-hmm. as I could and then people were saying aye so like we're an ace aware school who's defined what an ace aware school is what does that mean uh-huh. aye like yeah. um, who's defined what a, a trauma informed school is yeah and and it's not to say that schools who are getting involved in like understanding ACEs and attachment and resilience and trauma and all that good stuff, that they've not got the right to say that they are informed. Yeah. But there's a risk, I think, sometimes that we might think, well, I've watched a documentary and I've read a book, so now I'm. Uh-huh. Right? So, uh-huh. so people like, I think that's you know, very much. things about Danny, and I'm like, I, yeah. I genuinely just try and learn as much as I can. Yeah. But it's, it's theoretical. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's no way of knowing of knowing that you know. Uh-huh. So, yeah, this is this is what I think I'm coming across is um they don't know what they don't know. Or if I was being really brutal, it's the, you know, what is what's the phrase? Unconsciously incompetent. Yes. If I was being really harsh. Yeah. But then I do need to be harsh out this is out of personal experience as well of some of the things that have happened and that I've seen yeah. from people and places who say they're trauma informed. Yeah. And that, and I think it's even more worrying when an organisation thinks it's trauma-informed, but from my point of view or from what I see in practice, they're not. Yeah. But I don't have a list in front of me here that says, if you're this, you're trauma-informed. If you're this, you know, because it isn't about meeting a standard and then that's you. It's about something that you change that permeates. I think we mentioned something earlier about it permeating across the school yeah. or across all of the staff, across the way everything is run. And that includes how things are run with staff. Mm-hmm. So how the head teacher speaks to the staff has mm-hmm. to be the same way that he would expect, they expect the um, teachers to speak to the pupils. Yeah. It's got to go across all practices in an organisation. So if we're going to have kit bag and emotions in the classroom, then we're going to have kit bag and emotions in the staff room. Yes. 
you know, yeah. it, ha it has to go across. So, and I think some you of that's lost. You can't lost. just say to them over there. No, you can't just thing. say, well, it's for them. It's yeah. not needed for us. Yeah. It has to permeate inside out. And how do how we define that, how we decide if an organisation is or isn't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the way forward. Aye. And I've, I've grappled with, okay, we need the GTCS to tell them that they have to do it. Yeah. Or we need the GTCS to tell all of the ITE institutions that they have to train the students in this. Yeah. And then it's all very top down and everybody ticks the box and we carry right. on. So yeah. how it's almost like we need a revolution. <laughs> we need a revolution. Um yeah. it was it was one of the things that I, that I was concerned about because I know that in schools, I, and uh, sorry, I'm just going to take a topic out of schools just now. Mm -hmm. In every professional place that you can go and get a job, uh -huh. if you employ five or more people, it's a mandatory requirement, right? It's a legal obligation that you uh -huh. get first aid training. So you've got to have a first aider. Yeah. So physical first aid. Physical first yes. aid. So somebody cuts their hand, somebody within your workforce is able to deal with that. Uh-huh. Right. But there's no mandatory, and I may be wrong on this, but it doesn't appear to have any mandatory mm -hmm. requirement for those going into a teaching profession yeah. to know about development. Yeah. Well, well, it's interesting. If you look at the GTCS standards, there's a lot that, so they were renewed um, in 2021 after lots of consultation. Um, there's a lot in there about understanding the physical, social, emotional, psychological development of children and young people. Yeah. And it does mention the word trauma. doesn't mention the word attachment, so it mentions the word trauma in one of the standards. So you could argue, so they're the standards that we have to train our uh, students to be able to meet. Mm -hmm. So the standards for provisional registration when they leave us, and then they do their their. Uh, a thing me year their a probationary year find the words there they do their probationary year and then they have their standard for full registration so the word trauma um and, and recognizing the impact of trauma is in those standards and there is quite a lot about um yeah the emotional development as i've said so we could argue that it is mandatory but it's not how that's translated by people like us training teachers and how that's translated by schools yeah. so if teachers have qualified a few years ago really schools should be looking at right okay we need to still meet these standards the standards have evolved obviously as i said you know as time evolves and circumstances evolve that children are living in so surely there should be something mandatory for all yeah. teaching staff now yeah but there isn't so there's the almost a mismatch so, you know i was yeah. talking earlier about this political rhetoric and landscape is there mm -hmm. It's a lot of it's there. I wouldn't say it's all the way, but a lot of it's there to promote this kind of agenda. Mm -hmm. How we get that into practice and how we get that permeating organisations is another, another thing. Another podcast. <laughs> another, another, yeah. So I'm just going to pull one of the quotes out here uh -huh. uh, for one of the teachers that you saw speaking to during during this wee article and the mm -hmm. publication that he's put out. So it says here, you wouldn't be a neurosurgeon if you mm -hmm. didn't go through specific training, yet probably arguably one of the most important jobs is educating a child and protecting a child for seven to eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. Not to have those skills and training before I go into the workplace, I think, are we arguably getting it right for every child then? Yeah. And I feel like we've covered that, but I thought that the actual, that this is what one of the teachers had said that you yeah. had interviewed. Yeah. Um, and they, they're even asking, like, are we getting this right for every child? Uh -huh. Yeah, I think many of the teachers that we spoke to absolutely agreed that they would willingly take do more training and they absolutely agreed it was part of their responsibility to deal with people's mental health, or not, I said deal with people's mental health, to deal with it to some extent, um, but didn't feel equipped enough. Yeah. Um, so 
yes, what we do about that. So I'm just going to direct, directly quote uh-huh. uh, what's in the article from one of the teachers that says, I really worry about dropping the ball one day. Perhaps you could have done more or should have done more and you weren't aware how to do it or didn't have the confidence that absolutely terrifies me to the core. Yeah. Now, I, that's after um, one of their pupils had spoken to them about suicide. Yeah. Um, and then it says at the very bottom, the most prominent theme here, as mentioned above, is the lack of appropriate training for staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I read that this morning, I was quite emotional because I thought, I, I felt I felt quite good that the child was able to trust the teacher. Yeah. Right? So, so there's an element of trust being built there. Yeah. And that's what we're asking teachers to do. Yeah. So they've trusted them. Um, and we know that trust is one of the most important things that people can develop. Yeah. Uh, and it, again, it's built through like safe relationships or mm-hmm. through that security in a relationship. But when that, that young person shared it with a teacher, like they're, they're terrified. Yeah. Because they don't feel equipped. And that yeah. word's came up again. Equipped. Uh-huh. equipped. Uh-huh. With the training. They don't feel equipped to be able to deal with those situations. Yeah. If you could write <laughs> the programme... What would you make mandatory? The programme for initial teacher education? For initial teacher education. <laughs> what um, would be the mandatory components? I would have as much as I could uh, on attachment, trauma, nurture, um, any of these any of these areas that may explain, because lots of the mental health issues that um, pupils will suffer from have their roots in perhaps early experiences like or ACEs if you want, but the, the, the impact of early experiences, I would want our students and our teachers to understand the potential impact of early experiences um, on their brains, but also absolutely crucially, like I was trying to say before, is the power of the brain to, uh, well, they know about the neuroplasticity of the brain, the power of the brain to make new connections, yeah. apparently to prune the connections uh, that they no longer need. I'm forever hoping about this for my own children, that they yeah. will prune those negative ex- uh, connections and associations and experiences and will try and, f- and their brains will begin to um, trust, I suppose, again, I come back to trust. And so it's that, it's, it's crucial that teachers know that that is possible because mm-hmm. they could be the ones that could be making that happen. Yeah. Um, so that to me would be a crucial bit and they can only get that if we start talking to be- about how brains develop and what trauma um, and what ACEs potentially can do to the brain. Um, so there's that. And then there are other theories that we could look at as well. You know, um, there's Bronfenbrenner and um, it's important we look at all different theories of child development so mm-hmm. we can see how brains would develop normally, although I don't like using the word normally, but how, because I don't know how many people have normal brain development, <laughs> how do we define that? Yeah. Um, but we look at all those different theories and uh, attachment theory is a huge one that can bring a lot of this together. And I would love to see that going through, for, say, so we have a five-year course, undergraduate course. I would love it to be going through each year so that we build, so that students are able to get some understanding, go out and do some practice get some more understanding the next year and do some more practice and relate it to to particular children that they come into contact with all the way through the course, the five-year course, for example, rather than, okay, well, you do that for a few weeks in second year and that box is ticked and then we go on. Because, Because, again, we're trying to model that this permeates everything that you're going to do as a teacher. 
understanding all of that, always asking where's that behavior coming from? What's happened to you? You know, Bruce Perry or whatever said that, what's happened to you rather than what's wrong with you? Mm. Um, so it might help them understand behaviors. It might help them support the children. It might help them if they do have to respond to those conversations that are uh, about mental health, if it's older children or younger children as well. There's a lot of anxiety trying to understand where that comes from. So, yeah, I would have all of those strands running through the entire course yeah. and tied in with reflection, with that evolving identity as a teacher. I talk about the five-year course. I know that's primary teachers but because the postgraduate course is a very quick year. Mm-hmm. It's a very quick year. But again, it can permeate the year and we're and forever trying to get them to reflect on practice and on their responses in practice in relation to this theory. Um, yeah. I think that's the most powerful way of embedding it in in, a, in brains, embedding it in our own brains and our own professional identity. So, so if you were to share more about like brain development, yeah, um, different theories of development, um, attachment, yeah, responsibility that teachers will then potentially have, then you and you put that through part of the course. Do yeah. you think there's a risk of maybe losing some teachers at that point? Maybe, do you think there's a risk of them going, actually, I'm, I'm not cut it for that. I don't want to do that. There is a risk. There is a risk. And and sometimes when I talk to students about some of this content, it can trigger some difficult feelings and emotions in them according mm. to their um, circumstances or past. But I would argue, and I would always do this in a supportive way, that that's really crucial that that comes out. Mm. It, it might be that teaching isn't for everybody, but they should know that at the point of training. Yeah. And, and I, I mean this in the best way in the world. I would support everybody who who's willing to try and learn and become a teacher. Um, but it is a very difficult, demanding, emotionally demanding job. And it may be that it's too difficult for some people, depending on their circumstances mm. at that point in time. So we might lose some, but... Um, I do think that's a risk worth taking. And the vast majority of students I come into contact are not put off. In fact, they feel enlightened. They feel uh, that it's transformative, that it has changed their whole way of thinking. They will then go out into placement. They'll reflect on particular pupils that they've come into contact in placement and and they will go into their next placement and maybe act a wee bit differently. Yeah. Um, and I think that's uh, invaluable. So it's a whole learning process for them yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 What, what I'm going to move is on to now, Christine, mm-hmm. um, is looking after yourself. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's a very common trend through the article that teachers experience burnout. Sometimes they've not got the time or the space to look after themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm going to take this off the whole teaching topic. We can keep it within like professional context. We'll also look at it in a personal context. Yep. One thing that we're trying to offer through the podcast is providing people with like a mental health buffet. So yep. like, what do, what do other people do to look after their own mental health? Um, so those, those listening can think like, ah, I'm going to try running, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to try and read a book or go for yep. math. Um, and what, what I'm going to ask you is, what is what's on your mental health buffet? What are the things that you tap into if if you feel like your mental health is uh, going into overdrive uh-huh. or if you've just had a really stressful day, like, <laughs> what are the things that you do to, to look after yeah. yourself? Good question because it, it, it's up and down. You know, it's definitely up and down. 
Um, I've always been a runner and it, that people will think this is a cliche, you know, but I run all the time. Um, but maybe more importantly, I often run with friends, with close friends, um, like I did this morning. So 14 miles with um, some close friends. You can do a lot of talking on a run <laughs> and sometimes that talking's um, a bit easier because you're running alongside someone, you're not across a table. And and like my friend has always said that she'd gone through a tough time. It's hard to cry when you're running, hmm. you know, not, not that I don't think we should cry. It's good yeah. to cry. Um, but sometimes it's hard to talk about some of this stuff. And sometimes when you're running alongside someone, that's when you can talk about it. Yeah. Um, so I do talk and I run. Um, I don't talk about all of it. It's some of it's very hard. Um, and what would be on my buffet? Uh, a glass of red wine <laughs> would be one of them, but not too many glasses. But maybe more deeply than that, and I suppose I realised this a few years ago, was a bit of acceptance um, with with my... So I'm talking personally. So uh, I've got three adopted kids, had them since... Well, had the older two since 2009. And I would say it would have been about five or six years later before I was given myself the acceptance to... That, that this is really, really hard, that they are hard work. You know, I would have it no other way, but they are hard work. Their behaviour is hard. I am not perfect because I was a bit of a perfectionist before. Yeah. Still am. But um, once, it, and also that our family life was not normal. Birthdays and Christmases were not normal because there were too many struggles. Yeah. They're still not. Lots of things that... You know, as an adoptive parent, you come into wanting to be the same as everybody else and to give those kids everything that they've never had. So all the big birthday parties and all of this and that and the next thing, and some of it's just too much for them. Yeah. And you have to accept that, okay, they can't do that. It's not because of me. It's not because I'm not providing it. Um, and so that acceptance that their life's not normal, um, our life's not normal but you know I joke with the kids who needs normal <laughs> who needs normal <laughs> they're like you're weird yeah. mum who needs normal you know um, but then I, for a long time I needed normal or it felt like I wasn't doing the right job or I yeah. wasn't doing it right so acceptance that it that it wasn't normal it never, probably never will be is never going to be to some to some degree is it, that acceptance took a bit of a, a, a burden off my shoulders yeah. um, and allowed myself uh, I allow myself more times to get it wrong. Uh, I, I, and like you said, you know, about that repair, I do apologise. You know, I do lose it. I've sworn at the kids. <laughs> Not many times, but I have. We all have. But yeah, yeah, I mean, if, yeah, the buttons get pressed. and yes. But there was kind of an awareness right when my button was pressed. So I had to develop an awareness. Mm -hmm. and But there was also an acceptance that, God's sake, this is hard. Yeah. Quite, quite often that button that's pressed is something, like it's got nothing to do with... with that person no that it's something that tiny that's tipped you over the edge it's, uh -huh. it's either a, a build up of loads of different stresses yeah or maybe it's like a button that's been pressed that's been lying in your unconscious and, uh -huh. and it's something to do with you and your, yeah, your experience yeah. and your background yeah. and your history and that's just the one that they press well that's what kids certainly kids with their own attachment issues are really adept at finding that button yeah you know that's what they're doing they're out to create chaos because chaos is where they might feel comfortable they feel safe it's sad it's really really sad mm -hmm. um, but you know it takes a long time to realise that and when you realise that you know it's not personal they're not it's not personal to you what they're doing to you yeah. 
And even though they're calling you the worst mother that ever existed and the bitch from hell, it's yeah. not personal, actually. Yeah. You know, you've almost got to tell yourself it's not personal. Yeah. It's not their fault, you know. But without that awareness, though, you could, you could believe it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you might end up thinking like... And some days you do. Don't. And some days you do. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, I can't take this anymore. And it all erupts and whatever. Yeah. And then you have to stand back and go, yeah, you no wonder I erupted. You yeah. know, no wonder. And that's okay. But it's not personal. And we'll go back and, and we'll repair. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so that understanding took a long time to come, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but that was really crucial in me being able to continue to be their mum. Yeah. You know, that, that that button pressing thing, like that, I know that I've got wee things that that trigger me, uh -huh. and, and the, we've between myself and Lisa, we've got four kids, mm -hmm. um, to different parents. Uh -huh. So, so it's, I think it's like a hybrid family or something like they call them. But <laughs> whatever the word is for it, um, but basically the way that we view it is that actually the kids have get just mere, they've just get more parents to love them. Yeah. But sometimes, um, it was apparent in our oldest, so Ben, um, like Ben, I'd be like, right, one will go and brush your teeth. And he'd be uh -huh. like, I don't want you to brush my teeth. Mm -hmm. I want my mum to brush my teeth. And I'd be like, wait, your mum's not here, so it's got to be me. Yeah. And it's like, well, you're not brushing my teeth. And I can remember, like, I think it must have been about three at this time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, well, I'm here, so mm -hmm. I'm brushing your teeth. And I'd end up like forcefully brushing his yeah. teeth from him. Yeah. Think, like, you know, the intent behind it is is well uh -huh. intended. You know, I don't want his teeth to rot. But then, I'm like, I had no value for what his wee personal experience that was. Yeah. And when I've done, like, the reflection, the work on myself, what I've identified is actually it was just because I didn't feel like you needed me. And yeah. I never felt needed. And I didn't feel uh -huh. wanted. And I didn't feel loved. Yeah. So, so like, I was like, actually... I'm your dad, so you will need me, you will love me. Yeah. Like, you will let me brush your teeth. You, I know, and you hear yourself saying, no, you'll just do it, do what I tell you, because I've told you. But why should we? I wouldn't do what somebody told me just because they've told me. Yeah. You know, and yet I hear myself saying that I'm the adult, you're the child, do it. Yeah. You know, because, of it, it, and it's the super nanny world as well that we live in, you know. Aye. Who are we as parents? You know, we, we talked about the role of the teacher. Where's, where's, what's the role of the parent? Yeah. You know, um, what is good question? What is the role <laughs> of parents? <laughs> well, like the same as it is for a teacher. Yeah. We've got, it's it's build trust and build self esteem. You know, build them they build them up. I'm not saying that I do this every day, um, but really that's what about it's about. It's not about them towing the line because we believe that that's the line they should tow. Yeah. And she says that she's going to go home and tell them all to lift their shoes up and put their jackets away, you know, and this is what we do in this yeah. house. You know, we all will do a bit of that. But really under under it all, we're trying to allow them to be able to be independent and live and build relationships with others. Yeah. So that they can then live a life away that, from us. That independency can only come through dependency though. You know, like yeah. knowing, that, knowing that they can go and they can venture and they can, like yeah. they can fuck it up. Yeah, uh -huh. and that we're their safe space. I'm forever saying, but I, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, yeah. I, you know, while they're punching me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they, they'll push away and push away, but they need to hear over and over and over again that they're safe. I'm, you know, there is a safe base. Um, whether they feel that all the time, you'd have to ask them. Yeah. <laughs> but that's our role. That's our role. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that sums it up well. Mm -hmm. um, that even when it is exceptionally difficult, mm -hmm. like your job, your job, 
brackets. Yeah. Yeah, like, whatever word that I put behind that, like your role as a parent is just to offer that safety and, uh-huh. and, and the love that kids need. Yeah. Um, Dr. Gabor Matty, mm-hmm. uh, Gordon Newfield, wrote a book called Hold, Hold On To Your Kids. Yeah. Um, and it's about, uh, Gordon Newfield says in it, kids shouldn't need to work for your love. They should, mm-hmm. they should be able to rest in it. And, rest and in was, it. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. They shouldn't need to work for it. They should rest in it. Yeah. I thought that, like, that was really important. And then in that book as well, it also shares that whole like role of the parent, yeah. uh, role of the educator, role of the community, is that the role of parenting isn't, it's not actually a role, it's a relationship. Yeah. And we can all develop that relationship with kids yeah. um, to be. So if we go back in time, we look at like, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. Quite often we don't have that village community in, in this big, massive city of Glasgow. Yeah. It's really difficult to find a village. A village, that. yeah. Especially yeah. when... A lot of people have been encouraged to move away from their actual hometowns or villages yeah. to pursue a career. So there's no family. Yeah. Opportunities. Um, so mm-hmm. it's actually really difficult to get that village community together. Yeah. Um, so within your mental health buffet, we've got running. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wrote down here every question mark because you says that when you go running, you go running with friends. Yeah. When you run with friends, you talk. Uh-huh. So there's loads of different elements in that there's like human connection there's yeah sharing the energy and information between people there's physical activity there's movement yeah yeah just out of curiosity do you enjoy running yourself i do yeah, yeah. i do some training myself i do some training with people in a running club um so that's serious training so we're running fast so we can't talk and then i do the long runs with my friends um usually on a friday some other runs with them too so mixture yeah yeah okay and yeah, yeah, there's some days where I'm flying around the streets because it's been a tough, a tough day. It's amazing yeah. what it can how fast it can make you. Yeah. <laughs> Aye. So we've got a closing ritual on the podcast. Yeah. And um, closing ritual is using kit bag. Now I know that you've used kit bag on several occasions. Mm-hmm. Um in fact, again, it was one of the things that you, you had mentioned in your your talk that we were at where I was like, man, we really need to speak to her because <laughs> yeah, she's I mentioned using it. kit bag. <laughs> so I was introduced to kit bag in 2018 uh-huh. um, when I worked with Tigers. And since then, for me, I, I was going through the counselling at the time mm-hmm. and I, I ended the counselling and the counsellor says, like, you need to get better at telling people how you feel. And I yeah. was like, where's the book for that? Yeah. Um, there was no book. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I was introduced to it by um, Joni from Children First. All oh, right. Uh, uh-huh. And then we built a relationship with, with Margaret at IFF. Yeah. And since then, we've partnered with IFF. Uh, IFF sponsor the podcast. Yeah. So as a guest on the podcast, you get to keep this mini kit bag. Brilliant. Uh, it's go forward. But what I'm going to do now is go through our closing ritual. So I'm going to offer you two cards at random. Okay. Um, two cards of the animals, the qualities of those animals. And what I would like you to do is think about what card you would like to keep and mm-hmm. why. And what card you would like to give away and why. Okay. Okay. So I will... Get the cards. <laughs> so I'm just mixing them up. Okay. And the two cards that you've got. Celebration. All right. Communication. Okay. So I have to keep one and I have to give one away? Yes. Okay. Um, I'll keep communication for myself. Yeah. Because I would like to think, I would like to... Have a bit more of that so that I can communicate well with my kids because that's what it is all about, communicating communicating my love for them, my care for them and my understanding of them where I can because it's not always easy and they're teenagers now so there's extra layers of difficulty <laughs> sometimes. Um, 
And the other one was... Celebration. Celebration. And so I can give that away? Yes. So can I give that to my 12-year-old, um, who quite often thinks that he's rubbish? And he'll say that, you know, he's made of rubbish stuff. He should just die. He sometimes says he should just leave this club or that because nobody likes him. So I would like him to celebrate who he is, what he's actually made of, as I keep telling him what he's made of. He's not made of rubbish stuff as he thinks. He's, you know, a beautiful human being with a lot of humour and energy. So I would like him to be able to celebrate that. And uh, I know that I know that you'll go and you'll actually offer that to him. Yeah, uh, I will. And I, I, again, that's a really personal insight into the, the challenges that come with the young people, yeah, um, and that's not just a young person in school. That's somebody adopted child. Yes, he's uh-huh. adopted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what age did you was he adopted? So he's, t- he's twelve now, and we got him when he was just under two. Just under two. Yeah, and he's still struggling with that sense of himself, of who he is, mm. um, and what he's made of. You know, he thinks he's made of rubbish. Yeah, um, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, <laughs> he's not. So it's interesting that because it's like, I guess like 50 years ago, we probably never had these, I don't know, the science and technology. No, yeah. and the, the insight, yeah. Uh, the insight into like just how how important those first, first couple of years of life are mm-hmm. um, when it comes to like the, the development of, uh, people call it the brain. Um, yeah. So we've got like a brain inside the skull, but the, like that whole central nervous system. Yeah. It's all grown at that time. Um yeah, it's the amount the amount of growth that's life. going on in that, those early months. Yeah, yeah. Is, those experiences uh, are just they can be so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the way that neurons are laid down in that first couple of years, you know, it's like damn, absolutely millions a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you get older, like that, solar reduces, so neuroplasticity gets harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's consistency. Yeah, you know, like being consistent will change those pathways. Yeah. Being consistent will, will give them the opportunity to, to feel safe. Yeah. And I, I talk a lot about uh, about the drip feed, you know, even when he'll speak like that, then I will say, well, I try not to contradict him because I was kind of told, well, if he contradicted me, he'll just call you a liar, you know, yeah. which he does. Yeah. You know, I say, you're not a bad person, liar. Yeah. Um. You know, and, and I can understand that. So I try to empathise with him and, and, and it's that drip feed is yeah. trying to forever tell him I was doing it last night when he was upset about something that happened in his football. But you're all right. You're safe mm. here. You're safe here. And it's awful hard, you know. Um, and you're just hoping that that drip feed will be enough yeah. for him as he grows as he grows older. I'm so. sure it will be. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. The very kind, I hope so. <laughs> very kind soul, Christine. Um <laughs> That, you make me that, cry. <laughs> that, that was one of the things that, again, when, when we had seen you speaking, it was very personal. Yeah. There wasn't like, obviously you're an academic, mm-hmm. right? Like there's, there's no hiding that. But when you were speaking about how important this stuff was initially, yeah, there, there was nothing academic about it. It was just pure personal. Yeah. Um, no, it means a lot. Well, I do th- I think it's life-changing. It's, yeah. it's life-changing. Yeah. And yeah, it's my mission now. <laughs> well, um, just just before we finish, because again, we could I could speak to you for... Yeah, yeah. but we're, we're limited for time mm-hmm. uh, and we might even actually get a second podcast in on this because yeah. I'm really interested in your role as, at, 
uh, the Scottish Attachment in Action. Uh-huh. Um, I think that they're doing some phenomenal work around topics that we're both obviously very passionate about understanding and, and promoting that wider message. Yeah. Um, is there anything exciting coming up the pipeline that we should be aware of that either people who are listening or for mine personal like? Mm-hmm. Well, there's various projects they've got ongoing that they've been getting funding for. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the village there, um, that it takes a village to raise a child. So yeah. we, we have something ongoing at the moment um, that's called The Village and it's uh, providing assistance to care-experienced parents-to-be. Um, uh, so it's okay. in conjunction with yeah. Early Years and I think Care Visions charity. Mm-hmm. And that's been a great success. They're doing great supportive work, um, non-judgmental work with care experienced mm-hmm. parents to be. Um, so there's work going on there. There's work going on with uh, black and ethnic minority groups as well. And we've just got some promise funding to pilot this uh, reflective supervision in schools. Um, so we've actually now got two new employees under in the Scottish Attachment Action who are taking that forward, and I think that's going to be really interesting. They're just at the initial stages of that, yeah. So they're looking into what models are going on elsewhere in Scotland, what's working well, and then with a view to creating some kind of model and putting that into practice. Mm. So hopefully we will tie in. I will tie in with them here, and we'll look at okay. If that kind of model works out in schools, can we have some kind of model like that here mm-hmm. for our students? Mm-hmm. A, a sort of uh, professional supervision space for them where they're not judged, um, where they can reflect on... Because, again, we can't, I can't argue to deliver all of this content with them and not support them through that delivery either. Yeah. And, and a big part of that, as I've been saying, is reflecting on ourselves. So they have to have a space and a... And a permission, you know, in an environment that facilitates that um, support. So these are these are all conversations that are ongoing. And and again, I've talked about using kit bag with our students, and we're looking at doing that and getting some more training. Uh, so th- these are things that are coming. The conversation keeps keeps going. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, I'm sure it'll come to fruition. Yeah. Uh, with, with, again, the consistency. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And, and the right people behind it driving it. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, being like somebody driving it is different to somebody dragging it. Yeah. You know, like, exactly. Yeah. I've got to do this, or actually, I won't. I believe do in this. it. Yeah. Uh, so. And I mean, certainly the people that I come into contact with in Scottish Attachment in Action and elsewhere, when people understand this when they get it you know i know it's not a very professional phrase but when they get it they really get it like yourself you know that's why we have such meaningful conversations is that when people get it they really get it and they want to spread the word you know and and spread this practice and and there's people like that all over scotland head teachers you know virtual school heads um there's and teachers themselves you know that are spreading this and that's what we've got to uh, harness if you like and, and and expand um, and we'll get there we will Christine thank you very much for joining us um, thanks for having me I will put all sorts of you know, links in the show notes so as people can go and read any of the articles or Brilliant. whatever it is that you've published so far um, and aye uh, good luck with, with what comes ahead I'm sure that your paths will continue to cross I'm sure they will um, yeah keep up the good work likewise thank back you. at you <laughs> thank you In this Mindful Minute segment of the podcast, I would like to invite you to reflect on the episode. Uh, Listen to the sounds and rhythm of the river flowing, the birds singing, and perhaps focus on your breathing 
and the different sensations in your body. So when you hear the bell, and if it's safe, so make sure you're not driving, I'd like you to close your eyes and just be with yourself, bringing those feelings and sensations into awareness. So here we go. And that brings us to the end of our Mindful Minute. I hope that it brought a sense of calm over you and provided some clarity of thought. Thank you very much for taking part. <laughs>